What's up, guys? Super excited to let you know that we're now releasing transcripts of the podcast. It's linked in the podcast description. You can also find it on LinkedIn at Danny Langloss in our documents section. If you're not following us on LinkedIn, please do. We're releasing leadership content daily, really driving a ton of engagement. It's our main platform. If you haven't already for the podcast, please hit that subscribe button so you never miss another episode. Please give us a rating or a review. That really helps us reach more people organically. Thank you very much. Let's get after it. There are so many things that impact our ability to achieve success, but none are more important than leadership. Individuals and organizations rise and fall with leadership. We are here to help you rise. Thank you for joining us. This is the Leadership Excellence Podcast. Hello, leaders, and welcome to Leadership Excellence. My name is Danny Langloss, and today I'm joined by Richard Schell. He is the Chair of Legal Studies and Business Ethics and the senior faculty member at Wharton School of the University of Pennsylvania. His books on negotiation, influence, and success have sold over a half million copies. His new book, and the focus of this conversation, The Conscious Code, Lead With Your Values, Advance Your Career, is scheduled to be released uh, June, the week of June 8th, 2021, which will also be when this podcast is dropping. Richard's a skilled communicator across many diverse audiences, his students have included everyone from Silicon Valley entrepreneurs, Fortune 500 CEOs, to FBI hostage negotiators, Navy SEALs, United Nations peacekeepers. In addition, he's worked extensively with public school teachers, labor unions, nurses, hospital administrators to help them become more effective professionals. Richard, it is such an honor to have you here. Welcome to the Leaders Excellence Podcast. Thank you, Danny. I really appreciate you having me. So, Richard, could, I mean, Wharton School, that is a very, very prestigious school at the University of Pennsylvania. Can you talk to us a little about your career and background? Sure. Thank you. Um, yeah, I'm very fortunate to be on the faculty at Wharton. It's one of the, it's probably the business university, if you had to distinguish it from, you know, a lot of other business schools. It's huge. It's got 250 standing faculty. It's got uh, thousands of students, undergraduate, MBA, PhD, executives. And uh, I actually have a very non-traditional um, journey. I, I joined the faculty. I was a lawyer. Uh, I joined the faculty when I was 37 years old. Uh, the, uh, the, the legal studies department is uh, actually uh, the brainchild of Joseph Wharton. Uh, when he started the school, he had three required courses, finance, accounting, and law. And he thought that law was an essential for business leaders to have a grasp of. And so our department has grown with the school since then. We now have 25 faculty and, um, and we teach both law and ethics. And I, I, I teach both as well. The book, um, The Conscience Code, comes out of a course I teach for MBAs. It's a required course uh, called Responsibility. Uh, so it really combines uh, law, ethics, and character. And it's very much a, a part of the leadership curriculum. Wow. And, and I've had a chance. I haven't been able to read the, the entire book. Richard uh, and his team were generous enough to send me a copy of it for those on, on YouTube checking it out. It, it's amazing. The depth here, the takeaways, absolutely phenomenal. We'll probably get into it a little later, but uh, Dixon is actually in the book where I'm from, where I'm the city manager at and a, a crisis and tragedy that, that, that I was asked to help lead the way through. But when we talk about the book, the, 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 the Conscious Code, what was your inspiration for that? Sure. It was, it was really came out of this responsibility course. I was uh, standing in front of MBA students uh, year after year uh, teaching this basic course on responsible leadership. And I began hearing the stories that they were telling of their jobs after college, but before they came to grad school. And many of them had a, a quality to them that they faced a very strong ethical challenge. Uh, they were sexually harassed or they uh, were asked to be complicit uh, in uh, in a startup in terms of you know faking uh, sales or a website. They were in consulting or finance, and their bosses were putting pressure on them to put uh, data into reports that wasn't completely baked. Uh, and I began realizing that they really hadn't been prepared to face these kinds of conflicts. And there were a number of barriers that I realized I could help them try to overcome because they were all good people, but they were coming to the program with deep regrets uh, that they could have done better. They, they were a little conflicted and confused about what had happened to them. And so I, 
all of my books have really been about how to help people be more effective uh, professionals. And um, so I, I sort of felt the calling to try to write something that would help people of conscience, good people, uh, stand up and do the right thing. When the pressure is on to look the other way or to uh, hope it will go away. Uh, and, um, and, you know, it, it's not all about whistleblowing. Uh, you know, the, the usual uh, sort of take on this sort of situation is it's either or, it's conscience or career. You know, it's either you blow the whistle and you put everything at risk or, uh, or you just put your head down and, and, uh, and just keep going. And I think there's a, a big, big space in between. Uh, first of all, I like to refer to people as people of conscience rather than whistleblowers. Because I think people of conscience just try to do the right thing, but there are many effective ways that don't involve whistleblowing that will help you uh, correct things and get things right. Uh, it, it may be that you are called to blow the whistle at the end of the day if there's uh, you know, no other solution, but it, there's a lot of other steps before that. And it really, um, you know, to, to try to provide them with practical tools to meet these conflicts that they were facing at work. And I think that's an excellent distinction. It's not about a major situation that requires a whistleblower and, and you know, legal protections. These are practical day-to-day things. When I think about, you know, our, our uh, city clerk, Kathy uh, Swanson, and the decision she had to make when she discovered the embezzlement of Rita Cronwell, like that's a major, major thing. And it took her a few days and we'll talk, we'll, we'll, we'll dive into that later. Um, but but, but even on those big things that can become difficult, especially when you look at like most of the time people have difficulty with just simple conversations that might result in, in conflict or they perceive it, perceive them as being difficult. Even if something as simple as a supervisor needing to coach and mentor or somebody on their team, they're worried about upsetting them. There's this fear of man and the social pressures. Um, so, so the fact that you've done this in a way that helps us day to day, right? Make those choices, decisions based on our values aligned with that, um, but also for bigger, more expansive things. I, I think that's really impressive. Well, I think the, the two things are connected because um, I think the little decisions we make every day are the foundation for the confidence we have when bigger problems come along. And so if you make it a habit to express yourself when you're, uh, when someone tells a joke that's insulting, uh, and it's sexist or is uh, uh, demeaning to somebody. And rather than just sort of shrug and go along with the group that's empowering that person, you make it a habit to say, you know, I'm not comfortable with that. Um, And maybe it's just me, but, you know, I'd appreciate it if we didn't tell that kind of joke at the team meeting. Uh, That you can do it respectfully. And, And actually what's really mostly going on when you, acquire the habit of speaking up when you have a value that you think is at risk. About three quarters of the people that you're around are having exactly the same thought you did, but none of them have had the the impulse to speak up. And as soon as you speak up and take the lead, then everybody else takes a huge sigh of relief and they go, wow, here's somebody who said exactly what I was thinking. And then you get these nods of agreement. And now the whole team is going to be a value-based team because they know they have the permission to speak um, what, what their feelings are about these sensitive matters. And, um, and they get the courage uh, to you know, run, run, run the work in the right direction, as opposed to letting someone dominate who is on, you know, got a big ego or is a bully or is someone who's got sort of a bent sense of humor about whatever it is and, uh, or, or likes to cut corners or is, um, tends to be slightly dishonest, not in a, not in an embezzlement way. This, what happened in Nixon, I think was, uh, you know, you had a, a psychopath, you know, as a city controller, <laughs> but the, uh, but the, but the little things, um, then give you the foundation for having the confidence to speak when, when something like an embezzlement does come up. And then you know exactly what you have to do. You, you know what your duty is, you know it's clear, and then you have some tools uh, to take effective action. Wow. So, so, so powerful. And by us acting, what I took from that is by us acting on these values with character and integrity, and, and you're going to take a deeper dive. I don't want to talk too much. Um, 
it creates our own leadership value. It forms exactly. the trust and respect of others and builds those relationships. You're leading by example. That's what gives you the influence. And it ends up becoming contagious and creating a culture, a very healthy culture. Exactly. So, so Richard, how do you want to kind of go through and break down the framework? Well, I mean, I, I tried to make this actionable. And so the book has uh, 10 chapters and each one is a rule of the conscience code. But I think a simpler way to think about it is just four steps. And I've got it um, conceptualized uh, with something I call the ODA loop, uh, O-O-D-A, and then loop, like a loop in a circle. Okay. And the, the ODA loop is actually the strategies that fighter pilots follow when they're in a dogfight with another fighter pilot and they have a, an action in the air. And in the pilot combat sense, it stands for the first O is observe, uh, the second is orient, the third is decide, and the fourth is act. Uh, and then as soon as you act, of course, your, your opponent acts, and then you have to observe and orient and decide and act again. So, so the, the, the loop is that you're constantly adjusting to what your counterpart does. But in my framework, I changed the second O. So it's observe. So we, you're in the office, um, you're in a meeting, and, uh, and, and someone uh, you know, uh, puts up uh, a, a data slide and someone asks a question and, uh, and they hesitate uh, and say, well, that's actually not from a real study, but, you know, we just want to make sure that we have something to show the client. Well, now, if you're, if you're observing, you know that that's unethical. <laughs> so that's the first step. You have to, like, face up to it. You know, that's just not right. Then the second is own. Instead of orient, which is the combat one, it's own. And I think ownership is one of the most difficult parts of this because the, when you step from just observing to owning, that means you're going to take responsibility. That means it's up to you to do something. You're not going to assume that it's above your pay grade or that someone else will do it or that it's not your job. Or You're just going to say, this is a value conflict. I'm a person of conscience. I own this problem. Now, that doesn't mean you haven't told yourself what you're going to do yet. Just, I own this problem. I'm going to bring it to my heart. Uh, then the third thing is, now you own it, decide. What, do we, what, what are my options here? Um, uh, should I speak up now? Should I, uh, should I wait till the meeting's over and uh, take him aside and have a conversation? Uh, maybe I need to call my mentor or get some advice from someone uh, that I've observed this, what would be the most effective way to take action that would be the least disruptive um, and the most acceptable? So then you go through the decision process. And then the final step is you take some action. So maybe it's as simple as just speaking up at the meeting, but maybe it's uh, you step back to your office and, and you send an email to your mentor saying, can I have a brief word this afternoon? I've got something important to talk to you about. Um, so then, then when you take the action, then you're back in the loop. So now you're going to get new information, new advice, uh, new understanding, and now you make an adjustment uh, to your decision and go back and observe what happens when you take action on what that next step is, decide and act again. So, so each of the 10 rules of the conscience code actually is uh, caught up in these four steps of the ODA loop. And so I think that's really a, a pretty useful and, and simple way to remember uh, how you want to run this. It's a conflict problem. Uh, and so you need to manage the conflict in a way that is consistent with your conscience. Wow. I love how you've broken that down in the, in the simpler format there. And you talk about, you know, the set of 10 rules, then follow and operate within it. So, so we observe, most of us know when we observe something that this isn't right, whether it be an inappropriate sexual joke, whether somebody's manipulating data, whether somebody in a more extreme thing is, is taking money you know, maybe somebody's bullying somebody, you know, whatever the case may be, or maybe they're violating some policy that is a, is a risk or a liability of the corporation. But under the ownership, the take responsibility, it's up to you. What are some of the rules that apply for that? Or what are, the, what are some of the things that you're trying to drive home so, so we can handle this conflict problem successfully? Sure. Um, the uh, Sharon Watkins, she was the, the person who was responsible for bringing the Enron scandal uh, to light. She was an internal auditor there. And um, she, she made a comment that I think is really powerful in the ownership 
um, stage of this process. She said, all that's required for a corporation to um, go in the wrong direction or for an office to, to go off the rails is um, pressure, opportunity, and a rationalization. And so at the ownership stage, what you're going to experience is pressure not to do something. And the pressure may be, you may experience it as peer pressure. You know, everybody does this. We should just let it pass. Or pressure from a boss. Uh, we don't want this trouble. So just, you know, lie low. Uh, it could be pressure from a goal that everybody's trying to, um, to achieve. And, and you're right at the end of the quarter. And this, this little report is going to get you to the sales level that you need to be. Even if it's fake sales, you'll, you'll all get your bonus. Um, or it could be your role that, that you're kind of junior in the organization. And so it's inappropriate, you think, to speak up. Um, so, so there's this pressure. And I think pressure is what we experience when um, we know what the right thing to do is, but we're unwilling to own it. So there's, there's the first piece. Uh, uh, then opportunity, which is that someone has gotten a little uh, a little wrinkle in time here, and they're able to commit some wrong, and they think they might get away with it. Uh, and so, so now they're they're taking the wrong step, and and now you've got to figure out where you stand with it. And then the third thing is is uh, something we do every day, whether we're dieting or trying to exercise or uh, trying to remember to tell the truth, rationalization. And our minds, Benjamin Franklin, who founded the University of Pennsylvania uh, and is one of my heroes, uh, you know, said, uh, it's so wonderful uh, that humans are rational creatures because we can make up a reason to do almost anything we want. Yes. <laughs> and, and when it comes to ethical things, it's so easy to give way to a rationalization like just this once or everybody does it or nobody will notice or all the hundreds of things that, that our minds will come up with to disengage us. Uh, and so one of the things that's really important in this, in this ownership stage is recognize a rationalization for what it is. And instead of letting it beguile you, uh, step up with your values and say, no, everybody doesn't do it. I don't do it. And as a person of conscience, I don't have exceptions to my principles. Uh, I have discussions about them. Uh, or just this once is uh, what the frog in the pot likes to tell itself. Uh, I'm just going to get in this nice pot and, uh, and it won't cause me any harm. And then the heat gets higher and higher and pretty soon, you know, it's boiled and it's, and it can't get out. So slippery slopes are like that. And there's no such thing as just this once any more than there's just one bite of ice cream or one Frito or one, uh, you know, uh, one little fit. So, so, so you've, you've got the rationalization and you have to have the tools to kind of counter the rationalizations. And I think everybody has their own favorite list of things that they do to remind themselves. But examples are, well, what would grandma think if she could see me doing this? Uh, or what would it look like if it were on the front page of, uh, you know, a newspaper or a website that everybody that I know and love reads? Uh, or, um, no, what, what's, what's the, uh, what, and I really like this phrase, person of conscience, because I think most people are basically good people, but they forget uh, their values and in the rush or the pressure. And I think if you think of yourself as not just a leader, not just a financial advisor, not just a consultant, but you're a person of conscience who is a leader, a person of conscience who is a financial advisor, that keeps your values focused and front and center. So then when these rationalizations come along, you recognize them for what they are, and then you develop habits. You know, uh, virtue is a habit the same way that uh, exercise is a habit. And the better and more often you practice it, the stronger and more likely you are to uh, be able to behave a way that you're proud of instead of, you, instead of regretting. So, so I think the second step, this ownership step, uh, you know, if, you, if you're aware of what's going on in there, uh, and you become sort of sensitive and emotionally intelligent about your own feelings. Uh, and, and, and I say one more thing. I think one of the most powerful things I learned 
in writing the book was something I call the power of two. Yeah. And the power of two is never take these on alone. If you have any chance to consult with someone that you trust or that you love or that loves you, or you consider a trusted advisor or a friend of virtue, someone who wants the best for you, you know, don't go alone. Don't, don't get lost inside your own uh, conflict and bring someone else in. And that will often give you the confidence to overcome the rationalization. Yeah, I, I found that really interesting when I read um, the chapter on the power of two, and this whole idea of finding an ally, right? The, the not go this alone, um, because there are some other things within there, especially when you're you know, approaching the person to have the issues, to, to make sure you have clarity on what it is the issue is to make sure we're seeing it right, um, you know, formulating, you know, what that is. And so the, the power of two, it, the confidence that you're on the right track too. You're not seeing something more into it or the encouragement of somebody to do the right thing. Yeah. And even in Dixon, um, your, uh, your moral hero, uh, Kath Swanson, um, after she sat on her information uh, for a couple of days to try to figure out what she, what her duties were. And she realized that, she, you know, she just, she had to speak up about this embezzlement and that she couldn't live with herself if she didn't. Her next step was to consult with the mayor who she trusted and uh, to try and get some advice. And the mayor um, actually said, well, let's, uh, let's, let's go outside of town and, and get law enforcement that we know. Cause at that time they didn't know who else in town was, was um, uh, kind of affected by this or involved in it. Turned out nobody was much, but they, but I thought it was a smart move uh, for the mayor, very strategic. And also it kind of helped, I think, Ms. Swanson to think, well, we're going to, we're going to turn this over to the FBI, which is of course a, a pretty exalted level of enforcement, but also the office was outside of town so that, uh, there was an objective view on it. And, and the, the, tr- the power of two really gives you the chance to get that kind of perspective and advice. And then it's not just your problem anymore. You know, you're not crazy. You're, 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 you've got someone there at your side. And, and sometimes they'll actually be your ally, not just uh, as a kind of a, a trusted advisor, but someone who will go with you and sit down and talk to uh, the office bully with you and uh, they're a witness in the room that can give you confidence and even evidence uh, that might be useful later. Um, so so, so the, the general job of owning an ethical problem or a, a moral conflict at work is to regain your confidence. Uh, it's, I, you know, people call it courage. I don't think much of the word courage myself. Um, I think... Um, I think really what's going on, I think everybody uh, is courageous after they've acted well. And they, you know, someone says, wow, that was really courageous. But to the person doing the action, it was fraught with anxiety and fear and risk. And they weren't thinking they were courageous at all. Um, And I think what they might be is reasonably confident that they're doing the right thing. And I think it helps your confidence when you have company. Yeah, 100%. 100%. 100%. Just uh, to our listeners, a, a quick little recap on it as we're talking about the city and uh, the embezzlement by Rita Cromwell over a 20-year period. Rita Cromwell embezzled $54 million from the city of Dixon. I was part of a leadership team to help rebuild trust confidence. I was the police chief at the time. Um, and you know, I know one of the things is I sat with Mayor Burke and he tapped me on the shoulder and, and asked you know, to help with leadership was he wanted to be, he was a, a man that wanted to be certain. And he's like, we, we believe that this is what's going on. It appears obvious this is what's going on, but let's get the experts who deal with this scope of a thing because he was also a person that if he wasn't right, he didn't want to damage and destroy the reputation of another person. And I, for one, am, am, am grateful that it was handled the way it did because I can't imagine the two of them and what they had to carry for six months is they're getting documents for the FBI and watching another $6 million walk out of the city. The good news is we recovered very well. Um, where, you know, Dixon's on the move. Uh, we, we've rebuilt everything, changed form of governments, recovered the majority of our money. Um, but, but it's awesome to see you highlight Kathy and to talk about, 
you know, her confidence and, and later now referred to as courage, you're right, the, the power of two and what that was to come forward and to do, to do the right thing. But it doesn't have to be this big of a situation. No. That no. There's a lot, if we're sitting across from a, a team member that maybe isn't making the grade and you're trying to figure out how to have this conversation because you want to do it in the most positive way, you don't want to be mad on you, having an ally that you can talk to at the appropriate level to help you work through that, to make sure we're seeing things the right way, to look at different approaches. And, and ultimately, like you said, to build the confidence to have the conversation, that's a big, big deal. Yeah. And I think you made a really good point. Uh, it's, it's not, it doesn't have to be a big ethical conflict where someone's doing something wrong. Uh, I think to be a responsible leader, you really have three things you have to be proactive about. You're the one who wants to do things right. And you're the one who wants to do the right thing. And then you're the one who wants to model what being the right kind of person is. And you bring that every day. What, you, what happens is by insisting on doing things right, you actually eliminate the problem of doing the right thing because by doing things right, things don't fester and, and, and get distorted where it becomes an ethical problem. You know, you're, you're actually following the, the protocols or you're following the procedures that you're supposed to do to, to make sure that it gets done right, uh, that the quality is high, that the product has got integrity. And, and it's only when, when people start forgetting about doing things right that suddenly it becomes a problem of doing the right thing to blow the whistle on them. Uh, so, so I think a responsible leadership which is sort of the big topic that I think the conscience code is about uh, really begins with just having standards and being the one who owns those standards as a value. And then you just project to people around you um, that, uh, that a life, a professional life where these standards are front and center is going to create a positive workplace. It's going to create high morale and it's going to create uh, great work products that people are proud of because not only are the products excellent, but the way you got them has integrity. That matters so, so much. Let's talk about this leading with our values, values-based leadership, uh, rule two, commit to your values. And I've got some notes that I've taken. Sure. Um, but um, So what are the five values that are common themes to create integrity? Um, I think that, you know, there's a lot of research on values. And uh, of course, you know, they go all over the place. Uh, they're you know, depending on your tradition, they could be religious values, they could be professional values. Um, I think when you boil them all down uh, to the ones that are essential, uh, you come up with five that I made into an acronym. You know, it's handy to remember things. And the acronym is CRAFT, C-R-A-F-T. And the first cluster of values are around compassion. And basically, those are values where you care about others' safety, about their well-being, about their suffering. Uh, and so, so if you're in an office and there's a summer intern who's being sexually harassed, uh, you may see it as, oh, well, this is a bad person who's doing the harassing and, you know, I need to correct them. But I think a more a sort of more uh, full emotional response is, this is a victim who's suffering and it calls on my value of compassion to try to help relieve that suffering. And that's really the reason you're doing it. Love uh, yeah. So compassion has all that sort of concern for others. And that's the first one. Second, respect. And so there's, there's um, kind of res respect is more goes to dignity and the value of each individual to be um, given a, 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 their, their place in the, at the table uh, for them to be heard, for them to be um, uh, treated in a way that's fair uh, along with everyone else. And a lot of what's going on now in the workplace around social justice issues and a bunch of other uh, things that can get very escalated very rapidly, they, all, they often start with people simply not being given the dignity that every individual is entitled to. And then the anger that comes from that ends up exploding into something that's much bigger than it had to be because someone really didn't show respect when they could have easily shown respect. So the second is respect. The third is accountability. And we sort of talked about that. Uh, accountability means uh, people say they're going to do stuff. It's up to the leader and the, the value of doing things right to hold people accountable. Now, 
you know, all you have to do is know about an office where people aren't being held accountable to realize what goes, what happens in a group of people when there's favoritism or, you know, someone's getting cut a break because, you know, they're having an affair with the boss or there's just all these different corrupt things that sit in. So even handed accountability um, is a huge value, I think, that, uh, that, that helps make everything else work well. And then the fourth one, uh, C-R-A-F, is fairness. And fairness is about justice. Fairness is equal pay for equal work. Fairness is uh, we take turns uh, working overtime. We don't just assign it to the person we don't like. Uh, you know, fairness is uh, the kinds of uh, processes we should engage in when uh, someone is uh, accused of wrongdoing. And we want to make sure that there's due process for them, that they give a chance to be heard. Uh, so so the, all the values around fairness are really important. And then final, uh, the final uh, letter in craft is T, and that stands for truth. Uh, and uh, truth is the kind of value that uh, brings us to the law of fraud. When people are committing fraud, uh, they're violating that. It brings us to all the different ways that people cheat, uh, whether it's on expense accounts or on taxes or on uh, hours that they've worked. Uh, a lot of my students come from consulting and finance before they come to Wharton as for their MBAs. And it is unbelievably pervasive. I mean, it is shockingly pervasive um, how they've been conditioned to cheat, uh, not because they're bad people, but because the cultures of these companies uh, suggest that if you don't exaggerate your hours or if you don't uh, uh, manipulate your expense account, you're a sucker. And everybody does it. And so you, you feel like you're you know, not taking advantage if you don't put in for a meal that you didn't actually eat or a taxi fare that you didn't actually take. And so one of the things I try to do is repair them <laughs> and bring them to the realization that everybody does it is not a reason yeah. to violate your conscience and to violate your values. And going back to what we were talking about earlier, that that's the slippery slope. As soon as you start down that pathway, the brain is an interesting organ. Synaptical pathways that you use often become habits, and you stop thinking about them. You just stop thinking. Now, on a positive level, that's wonderful. If you, if you practice telling the truth and not lying, then it becomes easier to tell the truth than it was. But if you practice lying on your expense account, then it becomes easier to, to cheat on your taxes uh, because you just stop thinking and, uh, and it becomes a habit. So I think um, all these, compassion to truth, are virtues. And I think um, the, the big uh, thing that I try to do in the book and in my class is uh, it's not really teach anybody to be any better than they already are because almost everybody is already a good person. It's to remind them uh, that to be a good person, you have to act like that. And they knew that when they were kids. Their parents taught them that. Their coaches taught them that. But it's funny how social pressure and conformity sets in when you're in the workplace and you sort of take on the, like a chameleon, you take on the, the, the vices of the people you hang out with uh, without even knowing it. So I, I'm just trying to provide a corrective. That's no, and 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 doing. It. I love the way you brought this part. You made it simple. You make it actionable, very reflective. You know, we we can't teach people how to respond in every single situation. We talked about this before we began the show. But if we're guided by specific values, how we respond, never react, right? We never react. Let other people control us. How we respond based in our values turns out to to be a very good decision-making process and it yeah. allows us to stay true to who we are. You know, we can be trusted. You know, David Horsacker says, you know, the, the world-renowned trust expert, we can be trusted to do what we do consistently. Yeah. And, and the word responsibility, as I'm sure you probably mentioned in a podcast before you talked to me, is the ability to respond. Yeah. Uh, and so every leader has to just make sure they remember that the essence of leadership is owning their responsibility. No, 100%. Let, let's transition a little bit. I think you talked about this a little earlier. I don't know we named it this way, but um, rule three is know your enemy. And when I, when I saw that before I read through the chapter, 
Um, I thought about that to, in this, when I see the conscious code, lead with your values, you know, what this is going to be about, like the person across from you or the person doing wrong, but know your enemy has to do with you. Can you walk us through that? Yeah, sure. No, I think, again, it goes back to this pressure, opportunity, rationalization. Um, the, um, the enemy is within you. Now, if, if you're a religious person, there's a lot of metaphors that that immediately conjures up uh, of, uh, of the evil one. Uh, and I think religion often has embodied these pressures that we feel inside by giving them this sort of, uh, you know, this sort of focal point. But, but social science and social psychology have really studied this in, in detail in, in the sort of current era. And I have uh, another five. Uh, I call them the pairs pressures, P-A-I-R-S. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, uh, the first uh, pressure is peer pressure. And anyone who has a teenager knows uh, what can happen to someone when they are surrounded by people who are tempting them to do the wrong thing. And, it ha- and it's the same way all the way through life. Uh, so peer pressure is the first pressure. And that's, you know, it's, 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 it feels like it's coming from the inside, but what it is, it's your desire to fit in. It's your desire not to stand out. It's your desire to be part of the, of the crowd. And humans are social creatures. So this is very, very uh, functional, normal. Uh, you know, it's, it's, it's why we have good teamwork is, is we create peer pressure toward the good, but it can also be exercised toward the bad. So the first is peer. The second is authority, PA, and authority pressure is well-researched that we tend to defer to authority. We tend to follow orders. We tend to do what our bosses want us to do. And it sort of organizes social society for there to be hierarchies and for people to not spend all their time questioning every order they get, but to simply comply. And, and so there's a lot of functionality there. But once again, when the boss is asking you to do something that you know to be wrong, that on the one side, you're going to feel this desire to comply and to, and to be uh, helpful and please the boss. And that's an inside pressure. And on the other, then you have your conscience and your values, and you have to be able to recognize this is a moment when you should push back against authority, uh, question authority. So PA, and then I are incentives. Uh, these are the things that the group will buy into that are goals or financial uh, uh, pressures or uh, reporting pressures, the kinds of things. You know, if you work on Wall Street, there's always uh, this, the pressure of the street, the incentives of having your stock price be a certain level. And these are inc- incredibly powerful. It's, it's the engine that makes us work in some ways are the incentives, the pay we get and the, and the pride we have for gaining status by getting promotions. So, uh, so th- those, again, can be very functional, but then they can draw you in the wrong direction when the incentives are, you know, basically tempting you to cut corners and, and get there uh, the wrong way. Uh, then R are the roles that, you, that you're in. And I think sometimes, you know, I'm, I, I don't know about you, I have two boys, uh, two, they're now grown men, actually. But uh, one of the things that happened to me when my first child was born, I had this, I woke up one morning and I went, oh my gosh, I'm a father, you know, and that was a whole new social role for me. And the next thing that came into my mind were, well, what are my responsibilities now? And for the first time in my life, I understood the role my father had played in my life and and the way he thought about his responsibilities. And actually, the first Father's Day after I became a father, I wrote him a long letter and, and tried to explain how I understood what was going on. So the social role you occupy carries expectations, and that can be, again, it can be very good because you have a model of what a father should be or what a boss should be. But it could also be a problem because you think your role requires you to go along, to carry out the, the orders, uh, to not speak up because you're too junior. And so you have to push back against your self-imposed limitations based on what you think your role is. And then finally, the S in pairs, P-A-I-R-S, is systems. And these are the largest pressures that we feel as humans. Uh, They come from organizations. They come from social understandings. Sexism is a problem. That's a systemic problem. Uh, If you are trying to cross a border and you run into a customs official who wants a bribe, that's a systemic problem. 
And it's really hard to fix a, a values issue that's a systemic problem at the retail level. You're not going to fix global corruption by refusing to take a bribe or, you know, by, by making a big issue about a bribe uh, at, at the Turkish border. Uh, you're going you're gonna to have to think of some bigger way to handle it or prepare for it as a, a systemic problem before you get there and have a solution. So the system ones are hard. And that's where uh, you get to major corporate scandals. Uh, it's where you get where industries become corrupt and uh, they are price fixing, for example. Uh, or you end up with systemic racism and uh, people are, you know, being systemically discriminated against because of bias. And, you know, this, these are system problems that require system solutions. And, and when you enter into the systems end of this, it's much more about organizing, forming coalitions, uh, you know, getting a group of people together that share values and trying to correct the system. Uh, that's hard work. But if you're a person of conscience, sometimes... Uh, that's what you have to do. Employees at Google uh, uh, not too long ago uh, were, uh, were aware of the fact that a boss had gotten a $92 million payout as a retirement package, and he was a convicted sexual harasser. He had, he had, he had literally sexually assaulted another employee, and, and the internal system at Google had found that he had done it, and they still gave him this big bonus. And so the people at Google who objected to this didn't just go to their boss and say, this is wrong. They staged a global walkout all over the world on a given day at a given hour. So all the employees who felt the same way could make a statement that was a political statement about this, but it was a political statement to the company. And that's a system kind of response. And in fact, the company uh, did respond uh, and they changed their policies and they they changed their governance procedures for uh, sexual harassment claims, and they made a big difference. Wow. Wow. So, so knowing your enemy, it's about the things we feel inside. They're pressures that we put from on ourselves. One of, the, yeah. one of the phrases that refers to me is fear of man, fear of others, and that social shame, or, you know, there's many more than that, but peers, yeah. authority, incentives, roles, systems, it really creates that fear. I know you talked about in the book, these things create fear, they create uncertainty, um, they, they destroy our confidence. Yeah. You talked about the importance of having that confidence. Yeah, and I, I think it, the reason I titled the chapter, Know Your Enemy, is that if you don't have a word to describe what you're feeling, it feels much more powerful than if you say, I know what that is, that's fear pressure. And here's some things I know I can do that will help me step up against it. And, and, and one of the first things you can do is find a friend. The power of two is your best defense against peer pressure. It's also your best defense against all five of them, uh, because uh, we are uh, we are we are uh, creatures who uh, perform better in teams. There's no doubt about it. So, for the purpose of of this podcast, I want to step into one more thing here, and I think sure. it's probably under the act of Oda, right? Oda, observe, own, decide, act. And that is choose to lead. Yeah. Yeah. That's it. it the, you know, the book has a journey and the first step in the journey is to face the conflict. That's rule number one. And the last step in the journey is choose to lead. And I think it's really important to begin thinking of yourself, even if you're a mid-level person or even working on a factory floor or you're a warehouse employee at Amazon, you can choose to lead from wherever you are, if you um, follow yourself as a person of conscience and make your values uh, the North Star that you're going to follow. And it's a funny thing about leadership is essentially modeling the behavior you wish you would see in others. And, uh, and I think uh, you can inspire others by speaking up. You can inspire others by taking action that, um, that they wish someone would take and, and you've found the way to do it. Uh, and there's a wonderful theory of leadership that's been neglected that I try to resurrect in that chapter. It's called adaptive leadership. And adaptive leadership assumes that there are going to be conflicts of values in the workplace and that one of the essential skills of a, an effective leader 
is conflict capability, that you're not afraid of conflict, that you're not going to dodge it. You're not going to look for it. You're not going to you know, try to seek it out and stir it up. But a great leader is someone who's got the skills and capabilities of managing conflict effectively and reconciling values in the workplace, uh, finding out what they are, putting them on the table, finding out how we can square the circle and take action that's consistent with what might look like conflicting values. Uh, but uh, when you air them out and get people to express them, you often can find ways that, uh, that you can act with integrity and, and not um, and you know, basically remain aligned with values that on the surface look like they might uh, be pointing in opposite directions, but you've figured out a way to make them reconcile. That's pure gold. That's pure. I didn't have time to write down that exact quote. But when, when the podcast drops and people listen to it, it's dropping the week of uh, June the 8th, there'll be a post, you know, all week on LinkedIn, we'll be posting around this conversation, this topic, taking deeper dives. Um, and, and that will be a quote that leads a post. Very, very powerful. The job of, of leaders to, you know, I think you said something along the lines of resolve conflict at values, you know, and get that resolution, really essentially what it meant to me to pull everybody back together. And Wow. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I'll give you, well, this is a, this could be a controversial example and I don't want to polarize your audience, but one of my students brought a, a case study to, to class that I found, I actually ended up breaking them into teams to think about what they would do. Uh, and it was during the Black Lives Matter um, movement sort of, um, you know, uh, height of the, of the, of the anger and, and, and the discord that had come out of that. And some of the employees in the small company had wanted to wear their Black Lives Matter buttons to work. And there were also people who were supporters of Make America Great Again in the same office. And they wanted to wear their red hats that said MAGA on the, on the hats. And so you had a, a, a basically a, a, a cauldron of potential conflict over values, both sincerely held. Uh, and there they were ready to explode. And the owner of the business had to figure out, you know, you know, if I let, if I say no to this group, then, 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 then this group is angry. If I say yes to this group, then the other group's going to be angry. And, you know, there's just no way to reconcile this. So they, they actually, this guy was an adaptive leader and he actually pulled his employees together and he said, you know, whatever our differences are politically, we all want this company to thrive and we all want our customers to be served. And can we agree on that? So he found common ground below the level of their values on the political front uh, and, uh, and tried to get back to what they were doing there uh, in this little community. And so after some discussion, they all agreed that that's actually what they wanted to do. They didn't want to blow up the business. And so they, they finally agreed that people could do whatever they wanted to and wear whatever they wanted to wear in the back office, but that they wouldn't wear any of their gear when they were customer facing. And, and, and not cause unnecessary disruption with whatever their customers' beliefs might be. And I thought that was a really good example of adaptive leadership. There was a conflict. It could have uh, gone explosive. Uh, but I think the more in the current environment all of us are able to exercise that kind of adaptive leadership and get people to just work together to solve a common problem instead of focus on all our differences and, and go to the barricades every time someone says something you don't agree with. I think that's, that's the way forward as far as I can see. That sounds like just incredible, incredible leadership to me. Good way to, to bring things to a close. I always like to ask guests, is there any call to action you want to issue to those listening to the podcast? I, I would it's very simple. I would say, think of yourself as a person of conscience at work. You probably already do as a person of conscience at home. Just bring that to work. And I think let your conscience uh, be a, a lively part of the way you conduct yourself. And I think that you'll find that people respect you more, uh, that you'll have more self-respect, you'll feel better about your work, and you'll have a, a much more positive and thriving workplace. Awesome. Excellent. Excellent call to action. So uh, to our listeners in the details of the podcast description, there'll be a direct link to Richard's book. If you want to purchase that, you know, go out, purchase the book. 
there's so much more. There's, there's no way we could have gone through all these 10 rules and the stories, the research, the way you bring this to life. And, you know, in a, in a 50, 55 minute podcast, but if people want to want to find you or want to connect with you, Richard, what's the best way to do that? The simplest way is just go to my website, grichardshell.com. Uh, G-R-I-C-H-A-R-D-S-H-E-L-L, grichardshell.com. And uh, everything about me, about the books, uh, where to get them. Uh, uh, and, um, and then I, you know, my links to my Wharton School faculty page and all that are all, all over the place. So, uh, but that, that get, that'll give them the quick hit on uh, well, me and who I am. We will, we'll put those links in the details of the podcast description. And there's one thing that, that people don't know is that Richard is actually Adam Grant's mentor and taught him everything he knows. No, not at all. <laughs> He's certainly a colleague, but I think Adam taught me more than I taught him. <laughs> well, I thought I'd throw a little joke in at the end. We okay. talk about you know, how prestigious you know, Wharton School is and the experts that they have within their faculty, training and teaching the best and the brightest that I throw a little joke in there. Uh, to, right. you know. so, fine. Adam and I are good friends. Uh, <laughs> he and I taught together. Actually, Angela Duckworth is another member of our faculty, the author of Grit. Uh, she was a PhD oh, yeah. student. She was a PhD student. I taught for an entire semester in a course I had. So, uh, so I know her very well, too. It's a wonderful uh, intellectual community at Penn. Right, we welcome all of your listeners to uh, to join us on Coursera and on lots of different platforms. Uh, it's it's great. Awesome, awesome. We'll put some of that stuff in there. So, Richard, thank you, thank you so much for for taking your time and joining us today. Danny, it's been a real pleasure. It's been wonderful to speak with you. So, you know, Richard and I have been talking about you know concepts, ideas, strategies, rules to follow in his new book, The Conscious Code: Lead with Your Values advance your career, kind of broke it down. I love the, the Oda loop, right? To break it down, make it even a little simpler, you know, one, observe, two, own, three, decide, four, act. The fact that you had got that and, and, and it shifts a little bit from fighter pilots. If it's good enough for them, you know, it, it's good enough for us, right? And then, you know, we talk about committing to our values, being very value-based in our actions and in our, in our decisions, um, the importance of values such as compassion, respect, accountability, fairness, and truth, um, you know, knowing that we got to know our enemy. I love that concept about knowing your enemy, right? Peers, authority, roles, systems, incentives, um, and, and, and that tied into the other one we talked about, about the power of two, the power of two. And then, and, and then the idea we've got to choose to lead, choose to lead. Um, and, and one of the things that, that I've had a value of for a long time, it's what put me square in the center of our rebuild from Rita Crunwell is when all else fails lead, you know, choose to lead, but all doesn't have to fail. Choose to lead from a place of values and conscious and your call to action. Think of yourself as a person of conscious at work. Most people do that at home, but think of yourself as a person of conscious. So many incredible, incredible takeaways. We just scratched the surface of all all of the valuable information. Um, you know, just again, Richard, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you. To our listeners. Thank you for joining us. Uh, if you like this episode, please hit that subscribe button. So you never miss another episode. Consider giving us a rating or review so we can reach more people organically. And remember always be committed to excellence. <laughs> <laughs>